Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. In terms of creativity, I mean, you know, I was thinking about with the Vision Pro, I was like, you know, what if all of our media that we consumed was just 360 from now on? We're so used to the flat 2D screens. That's how we've always consumed a lot of culture. What if we didn't have to? What if we had this really cool, immersive storytelling? And we are starting to see people build that. And I think that's only going to continue as the devices get bigger and better. You know, what if we experience the world with this really cool, customized overlay? You could have cityscapes that are blank canvases because there's no advertising anymore. And every ad you see in the glasses is custom for you. So you're not getting stuff that you don't want or don't care about or find intrusive. You're like, oh, I actually really like this. There's just so much once you start thinking about it. And none of this will happen overnight. This will all kind of happen at different time periods. But it's going to be a huge shift. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Courtney, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So you are on a long list of people who our mutual friend Michael Shine has referred to me and everybody Michael refers is always phenomenal. So no pressure at all. Uh, but before we get into your work, I wanted to start by asking you, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping what you've ended up doing with your life and career? So my father was a school administrator and my mother was a public school teacher. They're both retired with those great pensions that uh, you boomers got from doing adults. Yep. And, you know, I think a couple of things that have sort of informed what I do. One is I do a lot of adjuncting work. I teach at different universities and, you know, I'm the only non, non full-time teacher in my family. My sister's a teacher. Um, my parents did that. So I think that for me, it was really about kind of putting information out into the world was always very important. Mm -hmm. I think that, I think also, you know, more in terms of just broad background, like my parents both came from very working class families. My mother grew up in a mining town in South Wales and my grandfather was a coal miner. My grandmother was a, was a housekeeper before World War II. And then she kind of didn't really work on my father's side. His father was a disabled World War II veteran. His mother worked intermittently like the shop girl, but, you know, they didn't really have careers. My parents were the first in their families to go to college. Um, and while they always encouraged me to pursue work that I enjoyed and work that I found valuable, I think there's also this sense of, you know, I should be doing something a little bit more stable. <laughs> um, right? I think their goal was always like stability, stable income, playing it a little safe. And so I feel very lucky that I think work on like cutting edge technology that is not often the most stable work, right? There's peaks and valleys, especially when you do stuff that's very new. Yeah. Um, and so there's always that little corner of my mind that's like, well, okay, this has been a cute little experiment, but tomorrow you're going to wake up and have to go get a quote unquote job. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I can relate. I mean, I, I come from a family full of college professors and my dad just retired. So he just got that start, that pension started about a week ago. Um, yeah. So I, I totally understand. 
you know, one thing with both your parents being educators, even you alluded to a little bit of this, but what was the, the narrative uh, about education in your household? Because like in an Indian family, education is kind of, it's one of those things we don't even talk about. It's just a given that you're going to go to college, that you're ideally going to go to graduate school. And if they have anything to do with it, it's going to be the best damn college and the best damn graduate school you could possibly get into. And so I, I wonder what that was like for you. So in my family, education was obviously very highly prioritized, very highly valued. Um, that was a gift that I would go to college was a given. That I would go to in a quote-unquote beat college was was sort of less of a given. I mean, I went to Wellesley, which is a, a pretty highly ranked school. Yeah. But I think my parents would have been just as happy if I'd gone to University of Oregon or something like that. Um, I think at the end of the day, they didn't put a ton of pressure on me to like go to an Ivy League school, go to law school, any of this stuff. I think that that would maybe a little bit outside of their realm of knowledge um, and sort of their realm of like thinking about the world. Um, but yeah, I mean, it definitely was, you know, getting, studying hard, getting the grade, working hard, accomplishing things. Like I was raised in a very like accomplishment focused family. And um, mm-hmm. from a very young age, it was like, if you swim 50 laps at the pool, you'll get an ice cream. If you read 100 books over the summer, you'll get a prize from Pizza Hut. Right? Sometimes all that. I, I'm like a dog. I'm kind of like swim out of it. Right? And I think that, you know, I learned very early on that, okay, you have to be committed. You have to practice. You have to kind of hone your craft. Um, and and those are skills that I'm I'm glad I have. Yeah. Well, I got to ask you, what are the the negatives uh, from that sort of achievement mindset? Because you, we just, we haven't aired this yet. And probably by the time people are hearing your interview, we will have. Jennifer Wallace recently wrote a book uh, called Never Enough, which was all about how our achievement mindset is really becoming a problem for um, kids in schools today. So I wonder, you know, in your own experience, oh, you know, what were the pros and cons? But given that you are an adjunct, I think we have to talk about it from a student perspective as well. Yeah, God, I'm still seeing with that book. I need to read that book. And I've read other sort of similar books. And um, there's one called Wonder Hell that just came out that I read. Um, yeah, I mean, the problem with achievement mindset is it's never enough, right? Mm-hmm. So I I tend to do this thing where I achieve something and I'm happy for a couple of days. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Next. What's next? What's next? So I think that that is the downside of this kind of high achieving mindset is you will never be fully satisfied because there's always something else to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, the upside, obviously, is you want people to look up to their potential, you want people to do their work. But I think that where a lot of the burnout that people are suffering from is not so much that they have like quote too much work or they're too busy. It is that they are working really hard, but they're not actually achieving what they want to achieve. And then that sort of like endless work is where you you start to run into these feelings of burnout and it's kind of brick walls. Yeah. Um but yeah, I mean, like the the other thing is too. It's t- there's kind of a class issue, right? Like my parent, my grandfather went to work at a coal mine every day. Like that didn't necessarily fulfill his soul. It wasn't his life's mission to like be underground getting coal, right? That was just what you did, and that's how you fed your family. And that's you know, and he he liked he had friends there. He was part of a union, like he was part of a community there. So I think that stuff is all very positive. But yeah, I think the idea of like doing work that feeds your soul is this kind of new, new agey, very sort of middle to upper middle class way of viewing the world. Whereas for the vast majority of humanity, work is the thing you do so that you don't starve. Yeah. I I so appreciate that perspective because I think that, you know, like I, I've been wanting to explore this idea of the role that context plays in prescriptive advice. Uh, and you know, which is basically starting out as a book titled, everybody's full of shit, including me. Um, but it, I think you bring up a really important point because class is one of those contexts that really is not taken into consideration when we talk about this idea of work that feeds your soul. Like if you look at all the various books, like not to pick on some of these people because they've been my own guests, like let's say we using Simon Sinek as an example, start with why. That's a privileged place to be approaching your work from. Yeah, you know, to your point, why? Because I need to put food on the fucking table. That's why. Yeah, totally. Really different way of of thinking about this. But I I think that that's so left out of so many of these conversations. Yeah. And I think what's happened is really my generation. So I'm late Gen X, early millennial, depending on kind of how you find this. You and I are kind of in that same boat. 
So yeah, I was born in 1980. You know, I, I consider myself sort of culturally and spiritually Gen X because I was raised with a lot of the early 90s pop culture, yeah. um, not the much late 90s pop culture, which I think is more than millennial pop culture, but that's, you know, somewhat irrelevant. Like, we'll graduate into the same crappy post 9 11 economy. Um, and I think that our, that generation, if you were raised in this kind of middle class and up household, the idea was like, work is going to be this thing that fulfills you and you're going to, you need to make an impact and da 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 da. And I, what I've seen is a lot of people feeling really disappointed and angry because they were fed this line. And then it turns out, in fact, that like most jobs are just manipulating spreadsheets, right? And most jobs are, you know, completely insecure, right? There's, there's no one I knew who has a secure job anymore, right? Like that's the thing that doesn't exist. The idea mm-hmm. of working for the same company for 30, 40 years and retiring with gold watch and a pension, that is functionally obsolete at this point. And you just see people who are sort of, they, they did everything right, right? They worked hard. They went to a good college. They went to graduate school. They took out student loans, blah, blah, blah. Like they, they followed the rules. And now they're all sort of like, oh, the payoff wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of pushback now from that generation. And I, what I see now with younger generations like Gen Z is this kind of almost anti-work attitude, which I kind of love because they're not buying into this myth of like, just work really hard and you'll be successful. Yeah. Um, because yeah, hard work plays a part in it. But guess what? There's like a Nepo baby out there who's just like, oh yeah, daddy, I want to do this. And daddy's like, okay, here's a million dollars. Go both we are. And I'm like, but I... We'd also like to do those and try the LOL note. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I don't think we examine the role that class plays in a lot of how people wind up in different careers or even how people experience the world. And I see that through a friend of mine who works very poor and is very smart, went to Wesleyan and then went to Harvard for graduate school and has felt very much an outsider her entire life because she does not really know how to exist in these privileged spaces. And I think that you, you need to have skills to be successful. Obviously, that's kind of the foot in the door generally, not always. No. But you also need to know how to exist in spaces and how to exist with types of people and how to have casual conversations about, oh, yeah, I was just in Paris. I needed such and such. Oh, really? I mean, more like all of these things that are so class-based, people don't kind of understand the importance of that and how kind of limiting it is and how much of a barrier it is for a lot of people. Yeah. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. Aweber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I, we had uh, Scott Galloway here, and I remember him talking about elite college, and he said elite colleges have now become luxury brands. And, you know, to your point, like... I, there's another book written by a Yale professor, and I can't remember his name, but I remember the book title because it was so uh, poignant and stood out to me so much. It's called The Meritocracy. Oh, and, yeah. And I, I realized that, you know, I am the person you're talking about. Like, I went to Berkeley as an undergrad, did Pepperdine, graduated with a mountain of debt. And, but when I finished graduate school, I looked at what was about what it was I was going to be faced with. And I realized, I was like, okay, there's no jobs. I'm like, I ended up here because I did exactly what people told me to do. Now I'm not going to do any of that because otherwise I'm going to end up right back here. Um, and yeah, to your point, it came with a lot of risk, but I think that I also was able to take risks from a place of tremendous, it's like my dad was like, yeah, fine, stay at our house and work on your business for the next four years without questioning me being as old as I am living at home. Um, and that was really fortunate. Like I have never really, it took me a long time to realize how lucky I was to be able to have that opportunity. Yeah. That's a rare opportunity. I mean, a lot of people don't have that. And also thinking about where people grew up. So if you grew up in or near a major metropolitan area where there's a lot of jobs and you move back home, then that's one situation. If you grew up in the middle of nowhere and your options move back home where there's no economy and everyone's on fentanyl, then that's a different situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and having the opportunity to move home and having the opportunity to be independent. I think one of the great barriers that we really don't talk about for people my age is... You know, if you were in your 40s, your parents are probably getting into their 70s or even higher. And what are their health outcomes like? And what, you know, what type of care are they going to require? And can they afford it? Mm-hmm. So you're now seeing a lot of people whose parents didn't have access to quality health care or who just for whatever reason smoked or drank excessively or have injuries associated with being manual labor. Like those parents are going to require their children to take care of them. Whereas, fortunately, my parents are in, like, amazing health. They're out there, like, running half marathons, (laughs) you know, and they have savings so that if they do need care, they can take care of it. And so I think that's, like, a a huge divide that we're not really talking about at this point. Mm -hmm. It's going to be really impactful for our generation coming up is, you know, whose parents give them independence and whose parents are going to fire, are going to be dependent Mm -hmm. on them. Well, and I think there's the flip side of that argument as well, right? Because there are a lot of us that like, you know, I I lived at home for a substantial period of time and I had to, I had no choice. And, you know, because like, I remember growing up thinking I want to be far more wealthy than my parents ever are, you know, all this other stuff. And I remember, I think probably mid thirties, I came into my parents' house and I was like, this place is a palace. This is insane. I'm like, even my sister was a doctor. She was like, we couldn't afford a house as big as our parents' house, you know, because she lives in L.A., uh, where, you know, she told me, she's like, the average price for a two-bedroom condo is like a million dollars. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's the same in New York. I mean, I, I you know, was, was very fortunate, and I'm sound can't sing when I say this, 
So I, my husband and I started dating in 2006. And in 2008, his grandmother passed away and left him some money. And that was how we were able to afford the down payment on our first apartment. And once we were in that door, then we were able to, you know, a few years later, buy a larger apartment and trade up. And we've been here for a while. But, you know, getting in the door is insane. And we live in a two-bedroom apartment. It's a nice apartment. I like it. Lived here a long time. But, um, you know, when I look at how much our apartment would sell for, and then I look at houses in other markets, I'm just like, oh, my God, what am I doing with my life? Yeah. 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 I mean, there are times, you know, where I'm just like, God, if I would be willing to move to like the middle of nowhere, I could live in a five bedroom house for the price I'm paying for a two bedroom apartment. Sure. Like the thing with that is honestly like, and I don't know, maybe there are people who are totally happy to live in the middle of nowhere. I'm not one of them. I I need, I need a million options. I need to walk on my, within my front door, I have Easily 15 to 20 restaurants within a three block radius. I have a grocery store and three grocery stores in a 10 block, a 10 mile, 10 minute radius. I have two pharmacies. I have live music. I have art. I have like, I, I could not leave my neighborhood and be fully entertained for months on end. And I can also get on the subway and go two stops and have a brand new neighborhood to be fully entertained. And so I, I am used to that. I kind of need that. Mm-hmm. Um, when I travel and I'm in the middle of nowhere, I like it for maybe a week or two. It's nice to chill out. And then I... That can relate. Yeah. Well, talk to me about the the trajectory that has led you to doing the work that you do. Because, I mean, as you mentioned, you're basically working on inventing the future for the most part. I mean, just so people have a background, we should probably give it to them. But uh, like, walk me through how you got there, because I think you're so far ahead of the curve in terms of the way that people think about some of these things. Yeah, I have a completely insane background. So um, I so I started doing a lot of like political activism in high school. I got very invested in it. Um, and I did a lot of internships. And I basically spent ages 16 to 22 interning. So I did so much free work when I was in high school, when I was in college, every summer. I mean, I really, my time in for the cause. And then when I went to find a job after graduating, everyone was like, just keep interning. Can your parents just pay for it? And I was like, no, that's not how this works. You've already gotten enough free labor out of me. Like, I'm not looking to get rich. Just pay me enough to eat and pay my student loans. And I couldn't find that. And I kind of had this really existential breakdown. And I spent a year answering phones at a law firm and being depressed and feeling like I'd wasted my life. And then I, found this nonprofit job that I really liked. Um, and so that was great. At the same time, I started, I had always written about music and been interested in music and benefit concerts in high school. And I, just, and I thought, okay, it's pretty fun to like freelance and write for local alternative weeklies. And, and so I started doing that. And I wound up becoming the music editor at Alternate Weekly in Portland, which was great. So I was doing that. I was working for a nonprofit. Um, I got into graduate school at NYU and I thought, okay, this is, now it's time to like, really grow up and, and go to grad school and I have a master's in public policy. And I thought, okay, I'll do like policy analysis, I'll work in government. And I got about halfway through graduate school and I was writing more and I thought, I really don't like public policy stuff anymore. I'm kind of burned out on it. I'm kind of bored with it. But I I was like, but there's no way I could ever be a full-time music journalist and make a living. That's that's an absurd thought. So I kept going. I finished graduate school. And then I said, I'm going to give myself the summer to look for a writing job. If I can't find a writing job by Labor Day weekend, I'll get a policy job and I'll write on the side. And in August of 2008, I got a job as a writer at Billboard magazine. <laughs> and I was at Billboard for four and a half years. I was a writer. I was a music editor there. And I really loved it. Um, and it was great. But there was a lot of churn at the top. I felt like I kind of got as far as I could. And I also, that was when Spotify was coming to the US. And I was really fascinated by this new sort of music and technology ecosystem that was starting up. So I kind of took a leap and I started working for this. I, I left Billboard. I started working for this music technology startup. And I did that for about three and a half years. And I'm out, you know, I got to a place where I was pretty good. I, was, I wrote two books about it. And I had a podcast. I was doing panels about it. Like I, I got to a point where I was like, all right, this is, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm an expert and I have these great clients working for all these startups. And then maybe like 2015, 
the bubble started to burst. There had been all this excitement about music and technology and Spotify. And then Spotify kind of leveled out a little bit in terms of being the next big thing. And a lot of these small startups kind of started going bust. The money was going elsewhere. And at the same time, I went to an art show that had a virtual reality piece. And I remember doing that VR piece and leaving Web Museum and walking to the subway and thinking like, oh my God, what did I just see? And getting really, really, really excited about it. Yeah. And so from there, I was still on contract with music startups. Like I kind of, you know, spent a year researching and writing and learning and, and building a, a groundwork. And in 2016, I was on a panel at South by Southwest with this guy who was a VR director just starting a production company. And we hit it off. So I came and worked with him. And then that was kind of the start of it. And I really have been doing different things, mostly running my company in the space since then. Well, let's let's talk about VR in particular, because it's funny because I remember I was like, I'm always an early adopter when it comes to any new technology. Like, I'm just like, give me the thing I want to try. I don't care if it breaks everything. Like, I'm willing to experiment. You know, we started a podcast when everybody said podcasts were dead. Um, And I remember telling my friend about VR and he was like, dude, the things you're talking about are 10 years ahead. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And we started a podcast 10 years before anybody was listening. Major cultural trend. But I feel like when I watch the, the sort of landscape of VR, I feel like it's it had this sort of, you know, like rise, then a plateau, and then it kind of fell. And then I feel like we're kind of somewhere in between right now. Because I remember, I think if I remember correctly, it was a Samsung gear, and I ended up getting a Samsung phone, even mm-hmm. though I'm an iPhone guy, specifically because they had a, a simulator for public speaking, where I could load my slides into it and practice being on a stage in front of an audience. And the reason I did that was because I remember reading in Ryan Holiday's book, Obstacles Away, how astronauts train for their missions. They go through the motions hundreds of times so that their heart rate stays normal, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, because like those kinds of things are a matter of life and death when you're talking about going into space. Obviously, you know, doing a speaking gig is not a matter of life and death. But I was amazed at how well it worked because by the time I got on a stage, I was like, I've done this a thousand times in my living room, even though it was just in front of the couch, just having that. Uh, but then I, I feel like we kind of took this dip. So talking about the current state of VR as it is today, and then we can start talking about sort of actual application of where this is going to take us. So the joke that I've been making a bunch is um, VR is Schrodinger's technology because no one knows whether it's dead or alive. And you can read a blog one day that'll say that it's dead and the next day it'll say it's alive. And um, it, it's got a lot of peaks and valleys. I mean, I think 2016, 2017, the time period you're talking about with a really big, you know, sort of upswing for virtual reality. There was a lot of excitement. Um, there was a lot of money coming into the space. And then there was, you know, it didn't get adopted as fast as everyone thought it would. So there was a bit of a valley. I think at the start of COVID, there was some excitement around it because people thought, oh, this is the moment for this technology and everyone's in their house. Yeah. I think, again, we weren't there in terms of the hardware and the hardware distribution specifically. Mm-hmm. So there was a little bit of a downswing. But I think now we're in another upswing with the Apple Vision Pro announcement. That's a huge deal. Like that was an incredibly exciting day. You know, Meta, Google Disclosure is one of my clients. So, you know, I I like them and I like what they do. They are putting out new headsets. They are putting out those great headsets. There is a company called Pico based out of, well, they're they're part of ByteDance, which is the parent company of TikTok. So, you know, they're bigger in certain markets. They have high quality headsets as well. So. The, the hardware is getting to a point where I think we're going to start getting towards math adoption. Mm-hmm. And I think Apple in particular, to me, that was really groundbreaking. And I think a lot of their coverage I've read of it has been kind of silly. Yeah. Where people are saying, oh, it's so expensive. Well, yeah, it's, it's a first version. This is Apple's whole playbook. Like mm-hmm. Apple historically for the last I don't know, 20, 30 years, they put out a first version of a device. It's almost very expensive. It's meant for a developer audience, an early adopter audience. Yeah. Then those people build the killer apps. And then three, four, five iterations beyond that, there's a device full of the killer apps on it. The price comes down a bunch and everyone all of a sudden has it. That happened with the computer, that happened with the iPhone, that happened with the watch to a somewhat mm-hmm. lesser extent. Like this is how Apple does it. Mm-hmm. And so for someone to say, oh, it'll fail because the first version is expensive. I was like, have you ever read any piece of history about Apple ever? Um, you know, I understand you just need the hot take machine, but like, can you make your hot takes kind of correct or at least informed? 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think Apple getting into the market was a huge, huge, huge moment. Um, and I think we'll look back and see it on par with the iPhone announcement or with the, you know, the iMac announcement. Mm-hmm. No, I, I remember when I saw that, I had, I had a friend who used to say to me, he's like, Apple doesn't invent things, they perfect them. And I thought that exactly. was such a good way of putting it because I, you know, I had um, the Oculus Quest headset and I played with it for a while and I, I used it and I saw a lot of potential for it. I mean, I, it, it was one of those things where I was like, okay, there are really profound implications. In fact, speaking of Michael Shine, I remember when I got the Oculus, I was like, hey, Michael, I was like, what do you, you say we do a, a, an interview in virtual reality and we use your concepts from the hype handbook to hype this up? <laughs> uh, and I was like, but I got to send you an Oculus Quest, which I was like, I'm not going to send you a $300 headset. But to your point, it's funny that people brought up the cost issue because I remember talking to my dad about this and I said, well, look, you could argue that the cost is insane or the counter argument is what if this eliminates the need for a TV, a computer and a laptop? Suddenly yeah. cost is, is actually completely reasonable at that point, assuming that it can do all those things. Just based on what I saw, I was like, okay, I have to get my hands on this. This looks like the coolest thing in the world. Yeah, uh, I, I would say wait maybe an iteration or two because- That's what my dad said. That's going to be like the, when it gets to be killer. I mean, if you look at the first iPhone, it was good, but it was expensive and it only had a handful of apps, right? Yeah. The iPhone only became a really mainstream consumer device, maybe three, on the iPhone 3 or 4. Uh-huh. Because all those apps started to get built. Now, of course, people can't live without their smartphones. Like, it's yeah. very hard to function without one as a human being. Uh-huh. Um, and so, yeah, I think that... You're right. Like I've seen those images where people have sort of a, you know, a desk full of stuff and now that's on your iPhone, right? There's a computer and a phone and a map and a this and a that. And now it's all in one device in your hand. So the cost kind of equalizes out. I think that's exactly what it's going to be with the, with the Vision Pro or whatever they wind up calling it. Um, and I think that's what's really exciting is like in 10 years, this will just be more. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, let's talk about the implications of all of this for how we live, how we work, how we educate. Because um, one thing that you know, I think a lot of people are terrified about. I mean, you brought up Meta as being one of your clients. Is like, are we going to be in a Facebook owned or a Meta owned metaverse? Is that we're going to be living where we're seeing ads roll through our virtual landscape? Uh, you know, like, what are the implications of that for a civil society? Which I realize we could probably do three hours on that question. So let me push back on that advertising point specifically. Have you sure. ever driven down a highway? Yeah. What do you see when you drive along the highway? Everywhere. Ads everywhere, right? So we already live in an advertising saturated environment, no matter what. Even if you put down your computer and put down your smartphone and just went for a walk through New York City or through Los Angeles or drove down a highway somewhere, like you're going to see ads everywhere. So I don't think seeing ads is necessarily the issue. So Meta has been very forthright about the fact that while they are building for the metaverse, they are themselves not the metaverse. Now, obviously, changing the name of the company to Meta was, you know, <laughs> there, clearly there was some confusion there, right? And I don't know that that was the best strategy, but that's unplayed my realm of expertise for sure. Yeah. So, you know, there are lots of other headsets on market. There will continue to be new headsets. There will continue to be new devices. There are certainly new metaverse worlds, like Horizon Worlds, which is Meta's platform, is one or several. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think the idea of like meta specifically being in the, the space is that big of an issue. I do think there we do need to have regulations and restrictions and governance around this because this, like we've seen with the internet, if you don't regulate it in an appropriate way from day one, yeah. it's going to be absolute chaos. <laughs> so I think we, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, people that I have said this, people at all these platforms said this, like, we need good regulations around this because we want to make this positive space for people. Mm-hmm. Right now, there's so much negativity and misinformation online. And we need to make sure that we are regulating these spaces in a way that, yeah, there's free exchange, there's free speech, people can spend time together. But, you know, if I look at Twitter or X or whatever they're calling it these days, more than five minutes, my brain starts to hurt because it's just such a cesspool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, th- this is something I, I, I like. I don't remember where the details were about this. Like, I just a memory that triggered when you mentioned sort of regulation because I remember reading about the Horizon workspaces or even the metaverse and women talking about being sexually harassed in the metaverse. And I was thinking to myself, seriously, and, and that's why I, I'd asked the question about sort of what does this mean for a sort of civil society. But it got me. I, I started thinking about VR from the, the very dating standpoint. And I remember telling a friend, I was like, well, what if instead of, you know, these stupid swipe right, swipe left experiences, you actually could talk to somebody. And I told somebody, I was like, well, basically you could be like, let's go for a walk in Paris on our first date, you know, using virtual reality, which to me sounds cool in a lot of ways. Because the, I've seen friends argue two sides of this coin in terms of what it will do to us. Some friends are like, oh, are we all just going to be connected to our headsets? And I kind of was of the mind that, no, I actually think this might incentivize us to meet in person more. Um, because I think it was Peter Diamandis uh, who had mentioned that, you know, as it gets better and better, he said, there'll be a point at which you would be able to put on the headset. And so let's say, for example, my you know parents have family members in India to be able to feel as if they're sitting right there in their living rooms like that, I think would be a really positive benefit. Um, so talk to me about sort of what are the potential pitfalls here when it comes to the way that we socialize? Because 
you know, that was one of the huge issues with social media in and of itself is that it turned us all into basically, you know, scrolling zombies. I very distinctly remember this because this was right when the iPhone had started to get to that mainstream point. It was probably about 2011. And I came back from Costa Rica after being there for six months. And I was like, every single person in the airport had their face buried in the screen. So again, I, I mean, I stuck on some of these things because I think they're taken out of historical context. So sure. women get sexually harassed in the metaverse. That's terrible. Um, I get sexually harassed on the street every day, almost. Like if I'm out running errands, some guy's going to yell at me. Um, certainly on, have you ever been a woman on Twitter? It's not a fun thing, right? So, so yeah, look, at a certain point, should we create reasonable guidelines within the metaverse so that that doesn't happen or it happens less? Absolutely. Yeah, no question. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, like the metaverse is people and there are some people out there that are just kind of awful and there's only so much we can do. Yeah. Um, the same with, you know, everyone having their faith buried in a phone. I mean, sure, but we've all seen that iconic shot of everyone on the New York City subway reading the newspaper. People have their faith buried in a book. People, like, people are, will always distract themselves. Now, the phone arguably is easier and it definitely is like lower quality content, perhaps. Um, but I don't see an like, I, I was flying to Portland last month to visit my folks, and the woman sitting next to me on the flight watched TikTok for five hours straight. Wow. And I was like, and and again, look, I mean, she was fine. She had her headphones on. She just sat there. So part of me, like, well, whatever, do, do you. But part of me, like, my brain would rip out of my nose mm-hmm. if that were to happen. But, like, I read books on my phone. I watch documentaries on my phone. So phone as a just overall thing you know, you could be reading Proust on your phone. Like, that's very different than five hours of TikTok. Um, so I, I think that just saying, like, we're going to have these devices in front of our faces all the time is a little too simplistic. Yeah. Um, I also think that, like, look, no matter what, people need to go outside and touch grass. And I work in this all the time. I'm clearly very bullish on it. And when I finish up my workday today, I'm going to, you know, brush my teeth, put on some lipstick, and go meet a friend for dinner and go see a concert and go, you know, walk around. Like, these will not replace these experiences, but what they will do is add another dimension of sort of socialization, interaction. And it's going to be great for people who can't experience those things. So I'm fortunate enough to live in New York City. Um, If you are a trans teenager in Southern Alabama, you know, this is a place where you could potentially be yourself and be safe. And I think that's what we kind of need to look at. Like too often, I think we focus on the negatives and there are plenty of them. But, you know, you talk about kids who don't have any sort of connection because of who they are and where they live. And it's really important to realize that a lot of people have found a lot of community um, and a lot of safety and connection in these digital spaces. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember Jeremy Balenson in his second book had talked about sort of how this could have a, a actual positive that ecological impact on tourism. So instead of flying to places, even though, I mean, I'm not of the mind that we should replace going and actually seeing something with, you know, like a VR experience. But it was an interesting point that he brought up that that could actually have a positive impact on our environment. Um, so talk, yeah. talk to me about some of these things. Like what is actually possible now that people probably aren't even thinking about? So more. I like Jeremy and I think his work's really interesting. I'm actually teaching his book as part of class that I'm teaching this fall. Um, but I know the travel thing I don't necessarily agree with. I think that going to Paris in VR is not the same as going to Paris in real yeah, life. Obviously. Um, but I do think so. Let's say, you know, a challenge in the US is a lot of people don't travel because, yeah, I mean, cost and all that stuff, but also they're intimidated, right? They might be scared to be in a place where they don't speak the language or they're concerned and allowing them to, to sort of much earlier points, allowing them to experience it in VR in a safe space before they go can actually be really beneficial. So I think there's, there's that part of me, right? I think that's fantastic. I think education is a space that I focus on and it's a really, very important space. And we're starting to see all this research about how much students are more engaged and they learn better, their learning outcomes are better. We talk about training in VR and that's something that I've worked on a ton and the outcomes there are phenomenal. So, you know, I think we can start breaking down sort of the positives, which are really, 
you know, you're immersed in space, you're not distracted, mm-hmm. right? We are distracted all the time. And right now, like I'm on my laptop, I've got 20, you know, tabs open, I'm looking at the window, I'm looking at my dog, I'm, you know, I'm kind of here, there, everywhere, I'm on Zoom calls all day, and of course I've got stuff going in the background. In VR, like you are very present in the moment. And I think that's something that's really overlooked is the sense of presence you have and being in the moment when you're not super distracted mm-hmm. is really important. And that's something that current technology doesn't provide us with yeah. is the ability to just sit and focus. And that's why I think the learning education outcomes in particular are so strong. Mm-hmm. It's because like I've been an adjunct since 2016 and yeah, all the students are behind laptops and I'd love to think that they're taking notes, but they're not, they're, they're goofing off, they're doing whatever. Um, and so I think that like, that's a really huge benefit is the ability to be focused and present again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought about what it would look like to teach an online course in VR as opposed to passively consuming. And I feel like what VR does is takes a passive consumption experience and makes the one that is actively engaging. Yeah, and there's a lot of research. So there's a platform called Victory XR that has, it does exactly this, right? So teachers teach in the metaverse. And it does a couple of things. So first of all, the students are more present, they're more engaged. Um, they can attend class from anywhere, which is great. And they also can be more hands-on. So if you talk about equity, right, there are schools in the U.S. that have chemistry labs that rival that of an Ivy League institution. There are schools in the U.S. that have chemistry labs that are 30 years old and falling apart. But if you did that in a virtual space, everyone has the same chemistry lab, mm-hmm. right? Everyone has access to the same tools. Everyone has access to the same you know, part dissection or or mixing chemicals, right? So it's actually a really strong equity argument for making sure that like everyone has access to this, whether it's, you know, going to a lecture at Harvard, even if you're in Duluth, Minnesota, whether it's, you know, you get the best in class chemistry set up, even though you are in the middle of nowhere, like all of these things start coming up and, you know, having a really positive social impact. Yeah, I mean, I remember my, my biggest takeaway from playing with the Oculus Quest where you could just spawn random things like I was in a lecture hall pretending to be a professor. I was like, okay, here's a gigantic dinosaur. And I could actually spawn a dinosaur. And I got in the metaverse with my friend. I was like, Matt, turn around. And he was like, holy shit, there's a lion behind. I'm like, I know, I put it yeah. there. Um, but so in that sense, I think it's great. So this is another bizarre question. So we had an adult film industry uh, actress as a guest here on the show. And I was asking her about VR and porn because, you know, obviously they're always at the forefront of a lot of these things. And, you know, like I've had friends, again, this is one of those two sides of, of the coin argument. It's like, they're like, oh, this is just going to turn people into, you know, like perverts who just sit around watching VR all day. I said, yeah, but if it reduces sexual assault, wouldn't that be a good thing? Well, I mean, like sexual assault at the end of the day is not about sex. It's about power. So I don't yeah. think any technology can fix that. Like that's just misogyny, which, yeah. you know. Fair enough. Um, so like, again, the whole we're going to turn into zombies thing, to me, that's like such a, a lame argument because it's like, look, we can say that's with every advent of new technology. You know, there's the famous clip of the Dowager Countess on, on uh, Downton Abbey losing her mind because they put a telephone in. And she's like, oh, God. People won't come by and visit anymore. They'll just use this horrible thing about the telephone, mm-hmm. right? Well, to our modern ears, that sounds absurd. But at the time, it was like the telephone will kill socialization. The television, right? You get a television set, you're just going to stare at it like a zombie. Oh, my God. And, you know, I remember as a kid being really into the sort of like no logo stuff and the ad busters. And, you know, I'd meet people at parties in high school and they'd be like, I don't have a TV. Like, it was this big point of pride. And, um, and now, of course, you know, parents I know whose kids watch Netflix all the time, they're like, oh, wow, they actually watch TV. How cool is that? TV is this like cool retro thing. You know, I think we can look at television. I think we can look at the internet, computers. You know, there's always, always these like horrible, what if we're all zombies use cases that never, almost never come to pass, right? Are there people who will struggle with addiction in VR? Yeah. Are there people who struggle with addiction to video games, to pornography, to alcohol, to marijuana to like name anything that is legal and that those people consume responsibly and we're always like an outlier set and those people should be treated and and you know treated therapeutically and we we need to solve for that for sure mm-hmm. but i you know i think that is completely oh it's just overblown it's just lazy it's like God, come up with a better argument you know we're gonna all be zombies i'm like yeah that's been done 
Yeah, I, I think uh, a really narrow-minded perspective. That's like, I always come back to the metaphor. I saw, tell, you know, one of my, uh, Tiago Forte always says technology is neutral. And I'm like, yeah, if you think about it, a knife is a piece of technology. You could use a knife to cut a chicken or you could use it to kill somebody. And I oh, think yeah. the way we have to think about this is to your point, are we going to do good with it or are we going to do destructive things with it? So one thing you, know, you talked about to, to what's happening in education Talk to me about what is actually possible. Like, what can we do? I mean, obviously, there's the ability to overcome physical limitations. Like, how is this going to impact the future of work? Um, and how is it going to impact people like me, creatives, like the work that we do? Because to me, when I look at technology, I'm all, my first question always is, what can I make using this that I couldn't make? Well, so I think a couple of things. I think from a future work perspective, and I just wrote about this recently, you know, now we're starting to see more return to office. So Bloomberg just today announced that they want to close back now four days a week. I mean, a lot of tech companies have kind of gone back on their remote work forever plans. Um, a lot of banks are really pushing people to come back to the office and employees generally don't like it. And so the argument from companies is one about like, oh, we want like serendipity and working together and co-location. I mean, really, that's that's a load of whatever. It's really because like they have expensive real estate holdings they don't want to money on. Yep. Um, but okay, let's just let's just say it's they actually care about co-location. Fine. Let's just grant them that. Well, I understand on Zoom and sort of on, you know, Teams or Slack or whatever, it is challenging to have a sort of serendipitous running into someone at a coffee station in the cafeteria type of moment, right? Well, in the metaverse, you can do that. So you can be working in the metaverse in a workspace. You don't have to worry about, like, commuting. You don't have to worry about, you know, fitting into an office culture. Remote work has been really, really great for women, for people of color, or through non-traditional employees, because they don't have to worry about like, oh, everyone in here is a white guy in a suit and I'm a black woman and I feel like I'm left out. So that has been great. So, you know, you're working in the metaverse, you are kind of wherever you're, wherever you want to be. And then let's say you're in a meeting. So your, your avatar has a red light above its head. You're in a meeting, you're busy, you're working. Now your meeting ends and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to catch up on some emails and I've got to do a few things, but I'm not like super busy. So you turn your light to green, your coworker sees it and it's like, oh, hey, I had an idea I want to run by you. Great. You and that avatar go into a little space, you have chat, you have a little virtual coffee, amazing, back to work. So like, there's a way that we can do this where it will actually enable a really cool distributed future of work culture that is what we kind of thought we were going to get post-COVID. But I think we can really do that. So I think there's that element, which is going to be huge. In terms of creativity, I mean, you know, I was thinking about with the Vision Pro, I was like, you know, what if all of our media that we consumed was just 360 from now on? Like, we're so used to the flat 2D screens. That's how we've always consumed a lot of culture. What if we didn't have to? What if we had this really cool immersive storytelling? And we are starting to see people build that. And I think that's only going to continue as the devices get bigger and better. You know, what if we experience the world with this really cool customized overlays? Like we don't, you know, you could have cityscapes that are blank canvases because there's no advertising anymore. And every ad you see in the glasses is custom for you. Mm-hmm. So you're not getting stuff that you don't want or don't care about or find intrusive. You're like, oh, I actually really like this. And so advertisers can kind of like fully micro-target you to the extent where you're not getting ads that are useless. You're just getting ads that are like, oh yeah, actually I do want this. Perfect. Um, so I think there's just like, there's just so much once you start thinking about it. Yeah. And none of this will happen overnight. This will all kind of happen at different time periods, but it's going to be a huge shift. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that a lot of people are hearing this and I'm guessing that the average person probably thinking, you know, okay, yeah, that's like five, six years from now. I don't need to think about this, but, um, you know, for somebody who is like really interested in starting to explore this, like tactically, where can they begin? I mean, other than just saying, you know, throwing on an Oculus and, you know, like playing around with it, which is kind of where I started. And I thought to myself, okay, the, to your point, like I was like, the only issue with this is other people don't have it. Like the people that I want to be able to interact with don't have one. So until then, and so it's just been sitting in my room. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of places to start. One is obviously get a headset. You know, you, you're going to be hamstrung if you don't have a headset. So go on Amazon, go to Best Buy, go on eBay. I mean, the used ones on eBay, so you don't want to spend 1200 And then I would say just start building. 
And you can start building communities in the metaverse. So there are a lot of metaverse platforms, actually, where you don't need a headset to fully interact. So Horizon Worlds, you do at this point. Um, but Spatial or Roblox, any of a lot of these other platforms, you don't need a headset. Like it's better in a headset, but you don't need it. So sign up for a spatial account, get your friends to sign up for one, start creating a world and hang out together, right? It's great. It's not that hard to do. Yeah, um, I, I created yeah. a world in Spatial where I basically put up prints of uh, podcast guest episodes, like I put up their covers. Uh, yeah. And I went in there with a friend and knew, I was like, yeah, go ahead and you know push that thing. And he was like, wait, it's going to play the interview. And I was like, yeah. I was like, you want to see the animated short with that person? Go ahead and click on that YouTube video on the wall. Yeah, no, it's awesome. And Spatial is like, I mean, I, I have no professional connection to Spatial. I just really like them. Mm-hmm. And I did something for my friend's birthday recently where I created a spatial room. I uploaded all these photos of us and our friends and invited everyone in our friend group to come and create avatars. And, you know, we're all distributed in different cities. So it wasn't like we could get together in person just for this birthday. But we had a great time. Like we had an awesome time and it took 15 minutes to make and everyone loved it. And so I think, yeah, there's that like super low hanging fruit. I also think that, um, you know, you could do something like get a 360 camera and shoot 360 video and watch it in your headset. And you will learn very quickly what works and what doesn't. Um, if you want to learn Unity, like a programming language, so that you build in VR, like that's fine. I'm not a Unity person, but I am always hiring people who are. Um, so, you know, depending on what you want, like it's the barrier to entry is fairly low, actually. Yeah. So, you know, I, this is something that I, and I could be totally out of my mind to think this, but I remember after about a month of playing with the Quest thinking, you know what, websites are going to be obsolete. People aren't going to have websites. They're going to have virtual spaces that are, we're going to need the way we need people to design websites. Now we're going to need people to design virtual spaces. Like I imagine a lot of jobs are going to be created because of this. Yeah, oh, totally. And, you know, yeah, like people will need virtual world designers and we're going to need somebody who understands how to build community, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not just about building a virtual space. That's fine. Um, but it's about understanding how do you get people in that space, how to get them to stay in the space. So I really think, yeah, don't, you'll need people with technical skills to build those spaces, but you're going to need people with sort of community management skills to actually grow those spaces. And because that is such like a gendered profession, like most of the community managers I know are female and they're kind of undervalued. I really feel like there's going to be a big shift because that's going to be the currency. I mean, like that's the currency of the next internet. Like we saw that with a lot of, you know, crypto and NFTs and now with the metaverse. It's really about community building at the end of the day. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, well, this has been amazing. You're like a wealth of knowledge about all of this stuff. I feel like I could pick your brain for hours and we could go in a million different directions. But in the interest of time, I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Unmistakable? Oh, wow. That's a good question. The first word that came to mind when I thought of that was undeniable. And I feel like there's just a sense of presence that some people have. Like there are people you look at them and they're like, you can do anything. Um, you know, I, I wish I was like that. There's a, there's a line in the, um, the, what's it, super pumped where Travis Kalnick says, like, I just want to convince everyone I'm, I'm undeniable. And I was, you know, and then he's certainly somebody who's had some issues and we don't have to do that. Right. Cause I, I mean, I wouldn't be like, you know, Travis Kalnick, that doesn't seem like a great idea. But, um, you know, just the idea of like, this person knows what they're doing. This person knows what they're talking about. This person knows how to make things happen and how to create, be creative and pivot. So I think there's a real sense of like, it's one of those intangible things. You Like uh, the Supreme Court, you know, talking about pornography, you know it when you see it. And I feel like there's just a quality that some people have where it's like, no matter what happens, they just keep persevering and pushing forward and making stuff happen. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything that you're up to? I am in the metaverse, but also all over the current internet. Um, I, the easiest thing to do is just search for my name. It's Courtney, and that's C-O-R-T-N-E-Y. There's no U. Uh, Herding, H-A-R-D-I-N-G. 
Um, that's my handle on Instagram, on threads, on Twitter, as as long as it's around. Um, my website is Courtney-Harding.com. You can find my, that's where I put my thinking stuff, writing stuff, other stuff. Um, my company website is friendswithholograms.com. And yeah, I'm like pretty easy to find on the internet. So I'm not many people have the same spelling as my name. So I'm I'm pretty easy to, to look at. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.